Hello, and welcome back yet again to Close Talking. I am your co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I'm your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And before we dive into today's episode, just a quick plug that the best way to help our podcast find more listeners is through ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you get a chance, it would mean the world to us if you could hop over and give us a rating and review there. We've been thrilled to have quite a few ratings and reviews come in during this Poetry Month, and it would be great to close it out with just a couple more. Meanwhile, we are barreling through Haiku Week here at Close Talking. We're closing out Poetry Month in style with an episode a day on that finicky little form, the haiku. And today, we are taking on, having addressed the use of syllables in haiku and the way that there is a turn in the poem. The other major feature of the haiku is that, as it is popularly taught, there are three lines. And yet. And yet, sometimes there aren't. And that's cool, too. Whoa. This one is a tough one. Yeah, this is the most mind-blowing to me. I remember when I first came across poems that were categorized as haiku that were not three lines. And by that point, I was like totally fine with the syllables going out the window. That always seemed weird to me. But like the line thing, for whatever reason, really threw me off. Yeah, and it's... The thing is, this is, a, this is where I think the differences in the language or at least not the language but um the poetic tradition um sort of comes to play a bigger part so Mm. we think of the three line haiku um but when haiku was sort of first being written even though we think of haiku in three lines um, it's important to, you know, go back to the history of the form um, and, you know, think about where it started. Not necessarily so that we adhere rigidly to it, um, but because I think it, it offers um, perspective on, you know, where things have changed. Because it's one thing to say, well, haiku has always been three lines and it's another thing to say oftentimes now in the trajectory of haiku which has evolved significantly since the 1600s three line haiku are now pretty common or predominant but apparently the pre-modern japanese poets and i'm quoting here uh from uh, the book on haiku by Sato, who's my new best friend, um, had no. Hey. no- <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Jack. You're always my best friend. This is just my next best quote. Pre-modern Japanese poets had no notion of lineation as a poetic device. What this means to me is that in the moment when haiku started to be translated into English, the poets who were doing the translating were steeped in the, obviously the poetic tradition that they were a part of, which was English and heavily dependent on lineating and line breaks um, and all that stuff. You know, that that has long, you know, been a part of um, the English tradition since before Shakespeare. 
lineation as a concept wasn't even a thing in the beginning. Um, however, this quote goes on to say, to insist that a haiku should be a one-line poem in English because the original Japanese poet had no sense of lineation is tantamount to insisting that no English grammatical article such as a or the should be used should be used in translating Japanese sentences because the Japanese language includes no concept of articles. So here I think we arrive at the central problem is is the line break a kind of best imitation of the effect that something about haiku in Japanese produces? And that is a very good question. That's fascinating. Also, just the idea that there's a poetic tradition that doesn't include line breaks and doesn't include an idea of lineation, as you were saying, doesn't include lineation as a poetic device is just so fascinating. Because as anyone who's listened to this podcast knows, we spend a lot of time discussing and analyzing and looking at the tool of the line break because it is such a powerful tool to control the flow of a poem. Yeah, and it's actually, I feel like it's almost the thing that's come to define what is a poem in English versus not. And it, you can sort of prove that by looking at, um, you know, like Instagram poetry, for example. And I'm not going to get into any bones I may or may not have to pick. But some people may say that certain Instagram poets are not writing actual poetry, but are writing statements or pieces of wisdom or something that is made to look like poetry. Aphorisms, perhaps. Aphorisms, perhaps. Without getting into the weeds there, the thing that they do to make it seem like it's poetry is a bunch of line breaks. And the big joke, uh, I had an English teacher who had written a story and when she was in school, and she was like, LOL, poetry is dumb, which was really not a great introduction to poetry and almost ruined poetry for me, as I'm sure it did many other students. In America, the tragedy continues. And she was like, I don't really want to write a poem, but I have this story, so I'll just chop it up into lines. And then they were like, great poem, very great poem. So another another example of this would be a poet like Bukowski. Some of his poems read as though they are line broken snippets of a memoir or a poem that we discussed on the podcast was Ted Kuzer's Abandoned Farmhouse. And we didn't really get into this in the episode, but you could look at that poem and say, well, what actually makes this a poem as opposed to just a short story? And there's a there's quite a bit of free verse poetry that falls into that zone and i wouldn't argue it's just the line breaks but you can look at that as another example of this question of sort of what is the device working that's making it a poem and how much of it is the line break absolutely yeah and this guy my next best friend sato he at least figures himself i don't really know the 
the current state of haiku lineation discourse, but he has uh, positioned himself as the, the sad minority but staunch defender of the haiku as a one-line poem. Um, and he has this one example uh, that someone brought up of, you know, why it might be better to think of it as a one-line poem. Um, and it is another basho, and it's a hoku, so it's starting the ranga. The sea darkens and the voices of ducks faintly white. Which is very interesting and a little hard to parse out, I think. See, I think that's something that becomes a lot more mystical when it's on one line, because by separating out discrete parts of it, they become more direct references to something concrete as opposed to all part of one kind of hard to pin down whole. Yeah, because the, the kind of the question is like, is this a sort of thing where we're saying the voices of the ducks are faintly white? Or are we saying the scene is faintly white as the sea darkens? Um, and that kind of like ambiguity, um, the this author and others would say is is made possible by the fact of um, it being one line. If faintly white were sort of dropped to the third line, you could more easily be like, okay, this is like a tacked on clause at the end. The sea darkens and the voices of ducks, um, you know, faintly white. But if it's like one line and it's this burst, you know, the sea darkens and the voices of ducks faintly white, then you're kind of, you're, you're trapped in this moment of, you know, um, is this like a synesthesia thing? Um, anyway, but at the same time, it's it, one thing that has become clear is that, you know, as with many things, when Americans and other people start doing something because they think it should be a certain way, it has the effect of uh, reverberating in all directions. And so there's actually many Japanese poets from, you know, along the 20th century who then started writing their own haiku lineated. Um, sometimes in three lines, but there are some poets actually um, who like really go aggressively line breaky and, you know, there's like five lines, they're splitting up words and, but I think for the purposes of this episode and because we're in the beautiful space of the podcast and you have only our voices and there's no visual cues to tell you when we're breaking lines. Let us for a moment imagine that the haiku is one line. And here are some wonderful haiku that um, we found that I think are great. I think probably either way, but thinking of um, it as one line. So this one is by, um, Hashimoto Takako, who was born in 1899, and she died uh, in 1963, so sort of mid-century. In the moonlight, I sleep with one who's alive dying, which I love. 
and it, apparently the story behind that, as one could imagine, is that uh, her husband was sort of had a prolonged illness and, and you know, she was often by his bedside um, as he was sort of slowly succumbing to the, to his illness. Um, and the other one that I love, and then we can talk about it a little bit. This one I, <laughs> this one's great. Um, and she's actually a contemporary, pretty contemporary haiku poet. Um, uh, Maizumi Madoka. She was born in 1962. Um, plum scent on the borderline of I like you and I hate you. I love those. What are you, what are you thinking about? Particularly with the second one, I'm thinking about how it conjures this specific scene of like sense memory and the idea that you get a whiff of a smell that reminds you of this person about whom you have such conflicted feelings. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really right. And I love that. Like, like if it was a three line poem, it could end with, and I hate you could be the, the last third line, which to me would be a totally different thing because part of the beauty of it being one line is it's so in the, on the borderline of I like you and I hate you. It's both at once and it's, it's that, it captures that real like just stuckness of these two opposing feelings. Um, and it, to me, it would be totally different if the I hate you was at the end and had its own line, it would feel like it sort of had the last word. Um, whereas that doesn't seem to be the case here. And I feel very much the same way about the first one. In the moonlight, I sleep with one who's alive, dying. If you break that up in lines, I think you end up with probably dying alone on the last line that feels the most right uh, of like ways to break it up that kind of feel like they fit the natural flow of the of the poem. And again, it's sort of like dying gets the last word and gets a little bit of undue weight because what the poem's really about is being caught in that moment of tension between the two things. It's not about here is this, and then there's this other thing that it's in tension with. It's that the tension is this smoother, more constant, gentler tension that's still powerful and still resonates, but it just creates such a different feeling about it when it's all on one line together. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so right. Yeah, and there's instead of like instead of it being with someone who's alive who is also dying, it's like there's this one state of like alive dying. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which is so right and so moving also to to put to put it in that way. Um, and it, it does feel like a lot more um, accurate to a certain kind of experience. Um, yeah, those ones are so good. They're really incredible. Read them again. I'll read them again. This is by Hashimoto Takako. In the moonlight, I sleep with one who's alive dying. And this is by Maizumi Madoka. 
Plum scent on the borderline of I like you and I hate you. In the first episode of Haiku Week, we discussed the Rengo, which is the linked verse game from which Haiku evolved. And Connor and I have been writing a Renga back and forth over the course of Haiku Week. So here is our Haiku Week Renga as of day four. Spotting Brooklyn blossoms from the plains, a snowless white as snow. The air is cold with pine. Or is it juniper? And does it matter? Of raven pines for the needle to move on the sun's seething hot reply. A long walk and a quick stop. Cold chocolate spring. No one else likes sweet tang, chocolate chips, orange sherbet, solitude. The man on the train says Romulus killed his brother. A long way from 6 a.m. All Roads Lead to Lupin was a memoir I never wrote. Or maybe fanfic. Spelly arms and fried stupid. I'm witched into stunning, wizarded a world away. Hey everybody, this is Jack again. Thank you so much for listening to our fourth episode of Haiku Week. Tomorrow we will be back with our first of two episodes on the issue of translation in haiku. That's such a big topic that we split it up into two. If you have thoughts on this episode, any of the previous episodes in this series, or any of our regular episodes where we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again, we would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us via email. Our email address is closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. Or you can find us on social media. We are on Twitter at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking or on our newly active Instagram account at Close Talking Poetry. We look forward to hearing from you and we'll see you again tomorrow.